Likud Party leader Benjamin Netanyahu has been asked to officially form a government in Israel. He'll rely on his traditional allies in the Orthodox religious parties, but also on a far-right parliamentary group called the Religious Zionists. And that's where it gets controversial. This group embraces ethnic nationalism and some anti-Arab rhetoric. And one of its leaders, Itamar Ben-Gavir, was a follower of an infamous racist rabbi. Professor David Myers is a historian of Israel and Judaism at the University of California, Los Angeles, and the international president of the New Israel Fund. I think the most important takeaway is that we see really the fortification of Israel as a Jewish state. And by that I mean as an ethno-nationalist state committed to the Jewish majority in the state and as a result less committed to the full rights and enfranchisement of uh, the Palestinian Israeli population. This is really a triumph of Jewish ethno-nationalism. That's a pretty tough assessment, Jewish ethno-nationalism. Doesn't this government just reflect a growing popular will? It was, um, I think, that some surveys that I saw show that more than 60% of Israelis say that they're centre-right. I mean, isn't this just a reflection of public opinion? Yes, it is that. But that does not make it something other than ethno-nationalism. The two things are true. About 62% of Israeli Jews today define themselves as right, to the right of the political spectrum. Interestingly, about 70% of younger Israelis define themselves as right. And this is in defiance of certainly the usual logic in many Western political regimes where the younger tend to be more progressive or radical than the older. Not so in this case. And so what we're seeing is really a shift. I really tectonic shift of Israel away from the equipoise that it once sought to represent as being a Jewish and democratic state to really being a Jewish state. I think we can point back to 1967, Israel's victory in the Six-Day War, and 1977, the surprising triumph of Menachem Begin, the leader of the Likud party, as key moments in setting in motion that, that shift. So we're, we're seeing really the results of much longer-term processes 50 and 60 years, of which Benjamin Netanyahu is in many ways the beneficiary. I wonder whether the assassination of um, Yitzhak Rabin in 1995 wasn't also one of those hinge points. Yes, you're right to point to that moment, Andrew. That reflected in, in a certain sense a countervailing tendency to the shift toward a Jewish ethno-nationalist identity on Israel's part. That was the heady era of the Oslo peace process. And Rabin was the most public face of it, along with his partner, Israel's foreign minister, Shimon Peres. And with his death, with his assassination in 1995, began a five-year period of the deterioration of relations between Israelis and Palestinians and the end of the Oslo process. It also was a period which gave birth to a new radical sensibility that didn't just sit impassively at the news of Rabin's assassination, but rejoiced at it. And Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is in, in many ways the big winner of the most recent Israeli election, the leader of the religious Zionist party, came of age at precisely that point. He famously brandished the uh, logo of Rabin's Cadillac, which he and a friend took off. It's interesting when figures such as that come to power, and he may well serve as the minister of public security in Israel's new government. Isn't it also true, though, David, that out of the 
assassination of Rabin came a new era of violence. Uh, just this year, 2021-22, was the most <laughs> violent year in Israel since 2005. Isn't it just possible to say this election was an old-fashioned law and order election and that, unsurprisingly, the left lost? I think one could say that. And here, again, I would uh, set that set of events in a wider context. I think you're absolutely right to see the end of the also era as the beginning of a new era of recognition for many Israeli Jews. The end of the Oslo process in early 2001 coincided with the outbreak of the Second Intifada, uh, far more violent than the first and the source of devastating terror attacks in Israel to which Israel responded extremely harshly. That set of events led many Israelis at the time, Israeli Jews, to say, we now understand the true nature of our enemy. And it really entailed an entirely new rethinking of the possibility of coexistence between Jews and Arabs in the land. And what we saw in May 2021 with the breaking out of deadly inter-ethnic violence in Israeli cities between Jews and Arabs was a return to that terrible era of the early 2000s when hatred was quite palpable on both sides. So shocking because only a few years earlier there was talk of an historic reconciliation between these two peoples. Now, I've read where it's possible that a majority of members of the governing coalition will for the first time be from either the national religious, which is the sort of nationalist, Zionist, uh, the settler bloc, and the ultra-Orthodox. The ultra-Orthodox mm-hmm. have, always, have always intrigued me because... They're very socially conservative, as indeed are a lot of Palestinians uh, in Israel as well. Mm-hmm. But what accounts for this alliance now between the ultra-Orthodox, who were much more concerned about personal piety, and I guess the piety of the state, but less concerned about national borders? What accounts for their new alliance with the uh, ethnic Zionists? So I'd say two things. One, the greater degree of attentiveness on the part of Netanyahu and his allies to the concerns of ultra-Orthodox Jews, which are about preserving their position in Israeli society, preserving very significant financial benefits, preserving the status quo as much as possible in terms of the expectations of ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israeli society. That's the first thing. The other thing is that ultra-Orthodox Jews are simply becoming more Israeli over time. Um, notwithstanding their steadfast resistance to the principle of acculturation or assimilation, they're becoming more and more Israeli. And as a result of that, they're becoming more and more right-wing. We're beginning to see really the erosion of the boundary between ultra-Orthodox and religious Zionist in terms of general outlook on the world and general attitude towards the large Arab minority within Israel's borders and the large population in the West Bank. This is a very important development. It's especially pronounced amongst younger Haredi or ultra-Orthodox Jews. And things are moving in such a direction that it may well be that the long-standing non-Zionism or even anti-Zionism of ultra-Orthodoxy may end up as a robust Zionism. That seems to be where we're heading. Let's move the focus to the United States because in a piece for the Los Angeles Times that you co-wrote, you said that the Israeli elections were a day of reckoning for many American Jews. Why? Well, it's been kind of a standard trope of American Jews that their support for the state of Israel does not really rest on which government is in power. That certainly has been the attitude of mainstream American Jewish communal organizations. 
it seems to me at least hard to continue with that practice and policy when you have in the Israeli government people committed to decidedly racist and anti-democratic sensibilities. What do you now do? Do you embrace those figures who may assume positions as ministers as before without any hesitation or reservation? Or do you say, this simply represents a vision of Israel that I cannot subscribe to and, and I will not meet with and will not engage in any interaction with members of the government who hold to overtly racist and anti-democratic ideas and views? Yes, in fact, uh, I think you've said that Jewish leaders should outright refuse meetings uh, with Israeli politicians who you say are unabashed racists. Uh, what about government officials? I mean, there is a democratic administration in the US at the moment. Would you tell Biden officials not to meet with certain members of uh, the Netanyahu cabinet? I would, but I'm sure it would fall on deaf ears. I, I know that's not going to be where this administration would head, but yes, I would. I wouldn't say don't meet with Netanyahu, although he's not my cup of tea, but he doesn't give voice to the kinds of ideas and, and sentiments that people like Ben Veer and Bezalot Smotrich do, which seem to me beyond the pale of the democratic game altogether. And I think American Jews have to make hard decisions about how they choose to ally with the state of Israel. Making these kinds of decisions about whom one decides to meet with or engage with does not mean a total detachment from a commitment to Israel, a commitment to Israel as a Jewish and democratic state, a commitment to peace between Israelis and Palestinians. It's simply making an important point at a critical moment in history. And I should say that I would recommend to President Biden not meet with Prime Minister Viktor Orban of Hungary, who accused to ideas quite similar to those of Smotrich and Ben Gvir. Just finally, Elliot Abrams, who's an old uh, Reagan and Bush era neoconservative figure, he just doesn't believe that Netanyahu will cave to the demands of the religious Zionists. He says that Netanyahu has stayed in power so long because he's a pragmatist, he's not going to cave. Does the pragmatism historically of Netanyahu give you any comfort? He's a pragmatist so far as it relates to his ability to survive politically. He's also a brutal Machiavellian in attending to his own survival. But I would not discount or forget that during his long reign from 2009 to 2021, he introduced a raft of legislative acts that eroded the robustness of the Israeli democratic system. And I think it's likely that amongst the first acts, will be even more extreme versions of those anti-democratic acts, including the override clause, which would give the Knesset the power to overrule the Supreme Court by a simple majority, and a law that would outlaw investigations of sitting prime ministers on graft charges, which could be re applied retroactively to Netanyahu. I wonder, though, David, whether it is possible for the Israeli left to be both pluralist and patriotic. The broad Israeli left, Labour, Meretz, craft a message that says, yes, every citizen of Israel officially is, in every sense, a citizen of Israel, Jew and Arab, but we're also patriotic. Yeah, well, I think, Andrew, that's the million-dollar question. We should just note that the anti-Netanyahu camp actually polled more votes than the pro-Netanyahu camp. Were it not for some decisions made by a number of parties on the left, it's entirely possible that Netanyahu would not have reached 61 mandates in the Knesset. There was a, a degree of 
lack of coordination and outright self-interest that prevented a number of parties from coming together and passing the threshold of 3.25%. That is an occasion for a good deal of introspection. And I would say you're half right in suggesting that there needs to be some sort of meeting point between the ideals of universalism and the ideals of particularism and patriotism. The most important path to the resurrection of a vibrant left will entail a genuine political partnership between Jews and Arabs, and not the moral of this election would seem to be involving Arabs in a governing coalition is cause for political decline, if not outright disaster. And I would say that as one looks over the past of Israel and its future, one can't really imagine a vibrant political culture that rests on both progressive principles and a strong sense of rootedness in, in that place without imagining anew the political alliance between Jews and Arabs. That's the companion to finding that perfect medium between particularism and universalism. Very good to speak with you, as always. Professor David Myers, he's a historian of Israel and Judaism at the University of California, Los Angeles, and David is also the president of the New Israel Fund. Thank you for coming back to the Religion and Ethics Report, David. Thank you so much, Andrew. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.